sharing this morning from or Hosea chapter 7. Uh, one of the things that uh, really has been premier in my thinking throughout this week was the, this idea that I really stressed this morning and want to do that again tonight is that there's a possibility of making some turns <clears throat> or even making some adjustments in our lives, uh, but not uh, really coming to the Lord. Uh, and that's, that's the greatest need. Uh, I think that's maybe why uh, more legalistic uh, theologies can take a hold uh, because they, they imply to us that if we can just adjust the behavior by legislation, whether it's uh, biblical legislation, law, or whether it's civil legislation, if we can just adjust the behavior, uh, we can correct things. Well, that's true to a certain extent. Uh, if, if I obey the command, thou shalt not steal, it's pretty likely that I'm not ever going to wind up in prison for stealing. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I've changed the heart of one who might be inclined to thievery. Uh, there's a lot more involved in stealing than just, uh, just, just taking the item. There's a, there's a tree from which that fruit is born. And to me, one of the dangers that we face sometimes, even as Christians, uh, even as once we trust in Christ, it's really, <clears throat> it's really easy for us to shift along the way somewhere and begin to believe that our acceptance with God is based upon uh, good works or doing the right thing. Well, that's, it's, it's good and it's honorable that we obey the word. In fact, that's how we demonstrate in many ways that we are disciples of Christ, but our, our acceptance is never based upon doing the works. Uh, our acceptance is based upon Christ uh, and the sacrifice of Christ himself. In fact, I was thinking this afternoon <clears throat> in the, as far as the intercession of Christ for us, uh, what does he offer up when you see him as a Christian? Uh, is he just, is he just uh, giving something each time I see him as a Christian? Or what is the, what is the, what is the sacrifice uh, in regards to the intercession for your sins today? Uh, if Christ is interceding for us. And I, I honestly believe it's just, it, <clears throat> it's just Christ pointing to the merit of his own suffering. Uh, I mean, we cannot, we cannot do well enough to offset the debt we owe uh, to an infinite God, an infinite, infinitely holy God for sinning against that God. So the only thing appropriate uh, to, to pay for sins or to atone for sins is the infinite value of the sufferings of Christ. And so intercessory, the intercessory work of Christ, I believe, is Christ presenting or pointing to the infinite value of his own sufferings. And that's why our sins are forgiven. And that is the basis of our acceptance, not, uh, not, not whether or not you performed well uh, this week. Obviously, as a Christian, we want to be obedient and we want to honor the word of God and live our lives in ways that honor God in ways that are not contradictory to the very nature of God. But our acceptance is rooted in our union with Christ. Uh, we are truly robed in the righteousness of Christ. So as I was sharing this morning, uh, began to share, uh, I was thinking through this text about the obstacles to that true returning, that returning to God. Uh, and there are a lot of substitutes for that. As I shared this morning, uh, one of those obstacles was the sins, the depth of our depravity. Uh, by that, I mean two things. Number one is we are so deeply depraved that we are disinclined to return to God. Uh, but the other thing is that we are so, so in our old man, so fouled, so fallen that we are incapable 
of that apart from the mercy of God. We can't just turn, make some turns, some just some things on the peripheral and be right with God. And so that becomes an obstacle for us. We don't like, as I shared this morning, our sins to be exposed in the light. And I've thought often uh, that God is gracious and merciful to shed light on my sins one at a time. Don't you think uh, if the fullness of the light of God would shine into my heart and into every dark corner that remains, uh, I would probably be overwhelmed with my own sinfulness and to the point of desperation and despair. Uh, but God is gracious and that he often shines light periodically in areas of our heart that we still reserve to ourselves and uh, in a very real sense are still operating in the power of the flesh and in dependency upon our own flesh. Uh, well, if you're a child of God, uh, the entirety of the Christian life is him illuminating those areas along the way. That is what sanctification is. Uh, it is the systematic and incremental setting you apart uh, unto the image of Christ. So that obstacle of the depth and the sin of our depravity. I mentioned in verse two as well, their self-deceptions regarding their sins. <clears throat> they were, verse two says that they don't consider in their hearts, <coughs> excuse me, that I remember all their wickedness and I made an emphasis on the phrase now, now their deeds uh, were all around them. And so there is a self-deception that we have to really guard against, but it also hinders us from returning to God because we deceive ourselves into thinking, well, I'm not, not that bad. Uh, in fact, uh, I was talking to someone uh, recently and they had asked someone the question, if, you, uh, do, if something were happened to you today, if you were to die today, uh, do you think you would uh, be able to go to heaven? Would you go to heaven? And that person uh, said without hesitation whatsoever, they said, they said well, if anybody else does, I should. Uh, you know, they just looked around and said, well, there's some pretty, I'm a heck of a lot better than some other people, so I ought to probably be able to go to heaven. Well, that's self-deception because you know as well as I do that the standard you're using in that sense is the, is the average sinfulness of man. If I can exceed the average righteousness of man, I'm good. Well, God doesn't grade on a curve. Uh, you're not going to go to heaven because you're not as bad as Hitler. Uh, you're not going to go to heaven uh, based upon your comparison in holiness to the very nature and person of God who is infinitely holy. And so single sin, not, not to mention the very nature of the sinner, is inconsistent and contradictory to the holiness of God. And you will not enter into heaven uh, through any other name but in Jesus Christ. So that self-deception, it really is uh, one of the obstacles to returning to God. We don't think we really need him. Uh, I'm not that bad. Uh, in fact, we probably let ourselves get away with all sorts of little sins, quote unquote, uh, because God, God is more, more concerned about the big ones. Well, the little ones can become the big ones very quickly. And that's why we train our children uh, early on in regards to that. In verse three through seven, I touched on this a little this morning, uh, the company they kept as well. Uh, the whole of Israel had become corrupt. Uh, uh, I remember, I forget who the president was, but uh, I remember as a conservative, we weren't particularly pleased with that. And I remember one theologian I heard on the, uh, in the internet, he said, we got the president we deserve. And I really thought about that. And I, I thought about how true that was. Uh, who, we, who we put in power is a reflection often of what our values are. 
And so if, if the majority of our country puts a person in place whose values you question, then it's, a, it's an accurate reflection in many ways of the values of our country. And the, and the farther downward the values go, uh, the farther downward the candidates we have um, for elections and putting in places of power go. They are a reflection. So the, the whole of Israel was like that. The kings, uh, the princes, and the people and even those who were feigning some religious observance were all absolutely corrupt. In fact, he says they are all adulterers. And so when you live in the company of those kind of folks, you learn to adjust to that. Uh, one of the most striking passages in scripture to me regarding, um, regarding the effects of living in darkness uh, is, the, is the story about Lot. And it says in the scriptures that living in Sodom, um, uh, Lot vexed his righteous soul. So it was the, there was a cursing effect upon the soul of Lot just living in Sodom. In fact, you see that whenever the angels come to deliver them out of Sodom, according to Abraham's request, um, they seem reluctant to go. They're not, they're not rushing out the door. They're, they're a little bit hesitant to go, it seems, because they're leaving behind what few comforts they had learned to live with in Sodom. And perhaps they had even gotten accommodated or accustomed to the darkness in such a way that they thought to themselves, well, it's not the best situation, but we can survive. But now you're going to take us out of here and take us to some mountain in the wilderness. We're afraid of that. And so there was some hesitation involved. And even for Lot's wife, you remember, there was an affection involved because when she goes away, the, the language there suggests that when she looked back, it was longingly. I want to go back. And she had been warned that if, she was, if they were to look back of the consequences, and obviously you know the story, she was turned to a pillar of salt in the moment that she looked back longingly. So, so the problem is, Israel living in darkness had grown accustomed to the darkness and then the darkness becomes normal. And I mentioned this morning, as Steve reminded us, Overton's window, but also the toleration, which becomes accommodation, which becomes participation, which becomes celebration. And so it was in the life of Israel. And so it seems to be so much so in the life of America today. Kings, princes, people alike uh, are away from God or moving away from God. I touched briefly on this one this morning in verses 8 through 11 as well. Uh, Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. He has become a cake not turned, burned on one side as it were. Strangers devour his strength, yet he doesn't know it. Gray hairs are also sprinkled on him, yet he doesn't know it. And though the, though the pride of the Israel testifies against him, yet still they have not returned to the Lord their God, nor have they sought him for all this. Uh, verse 11 is striking, but he says that Ephraim has become like a silly dove without sense. I, I had in my notes, she, she's flighty. Uh, she's, she's not firm anywhere. Uh, it's like a silly dove. She just flitters here and flitters there according to the way the wind blows. She's, there's no stability in her at all. She's, she's forfeited that and her strength and her respect so the alliances they made and the, the way they sought for their security in this world. Uh, by the way, uh, that, is a subtle, that is a subtle drift. 
uh, as I mentioned this morning, we do a lot of things to provide for ourselves and our security and our futures and our retirement, uh, things like that. I'm not suggesting that is unwise. In fact, uh, the Proverbs is full of uh, admonitions that we ought to be wise about things like that. The prudent man uh, sees, the, sees the day coming and prepares himself for those things. So we ought to be wise about that. But there is a, there is a sense in which people become so involved in that and so obsessed with that that they, they forget or they set aside or minimize the reality that their ultimate security rests in God. Because all those things can't ultimately preserve you. You can have, I remember years ago, I knew a couple that they'd worked hard all their lives, never took any vacations, uh, really worked hard and had it all planned out perfectly, built a wonderful business, sold it. And then uh, by the time they were 60, their intentions were all along, we will retire and we're just going to do a world tour. I think they got the first leg into their tour and the husband became deathly ill. Uh, they brought him back to the United States. He was diagnosed with some kind of very serious advanced abdominal cancer and in three weeks he was gone. A lifetime of planning and working and preparing to do a world tour, trusting that you were going to be able to make the world tour. And then when finally you get to the place and you achieve your goal, uh, in three weeks, uh, he's gone. And of course, uh, their world tour came to an end at that moment. So uh, one of the dangers, one of the things that keeps us from seeking the Lord or returning to the Lord is finding our security in so many other places. And I think we're particularly prone to that in America. Uh, uh, Brother Steve and Travis and I were just talking before the service about poverty. Uh, the largest, I think, I quote, tell me if I'm wrong, Steve, but Steve was quoting some statistic that said the, the average home size of the poor uh, in this country was larger than 80% of the dwellings in Europe. Uh, so so, so we, just, we just look for security in so many places. If I got a home, I got a job, I got my health, I, I got my security, I got a good doctor, I got good insurance, got a good 401k, uh, I should be good to go. So there's no sensibility to our utter dependence upon God for the very next breath we take. And to me, that's, a, that's an obstacle for us returning to the Lord because we feel no need. We feel no, we, we feel no compulsion to need the Lord except for the big things, salvation and take us to heaven. But we'll handle it here on the earth. Uh, just to run through those in verse 9 and 10 as well, just to, I just picked pick these out. I mentioned them briefly this morning, but they mixed themselves, whether that was with their alliances for power and security or even in mixed marriages. But they did all these things. They essentially sell their independence, their sovereignty, and their strength by making these alliances in verse 9. They are weakened by these. They give up their strength, as I shared this morning. The gray hair, I think, is the emphasis there. You've grown weak uh, you're like a, a weakened old man now. You're no longer uh, to be feared. You're no longer, your deterrence has went away. Nobody's afraid of you anymore, Israel, because you've sold yourself. You've sold your strength and you become flighty like a silly dove. You can imagine uh, how they were probably being exploited in so many of these alliances. He mentions in verse 10 there his pride. Uh, he's actually failing all the way around and in every way, yet he thinks himself to be successful. And that is really stunning if you look at that verse. Through, Though the pride of Israel testifies against him, yet they have not returned to the Lord their God, nor 
have they sought him for all of this. So even while Israel was in this declining position, they were so, so satisfied with themselves and so prideful that they weren't even aware that they were showing all the symptoms of declining and weakening. And yet for all of that, they would not return to the Lord. And that itself became a testimony against their pridefulness. Israel was in a bad way, in a bad state. And I'll be honest when I'm saying, I think, America in many ways is in, a, in an equally bad place. Um, we are relying upon so many other things and not recognizing that our security as a people and as a nation, even individually, rests in God. And to me, we make the same errors as Israel was making. Uh, in verse 14, I'll just pick up here in some comments tonight, but in verse 14, I think one of the, uh, one of the obstacles for their returning to the Lord was the superficial nature of their wailing and prayer uh, for those temporal comforts. In verse 14, he says, they do not cry to me from their heart when they wail on their bed. So whenever they would have a need, he's saying they, they cry out to me, they turn to God in those times of need, but it's not from their heart. It, it's, it's a selfish motivation. Lord, I want this luxury has been taken away from me and I want my luxury back. I used to have quarts and quarts of wine and now it seems like we just have a, a cup occasionally. We want all the wine back. And they, and they wail. I, I love the phrase here. They, they're serious about this. They are so distraught about the, about the slightest deprivation that they wail away on their beds that God would make them comfortable again. And he says they don't do that from their hearts. In fact, if they realize that earlier in chapter 6, if they would realize that I have torn them, that I have wounded them, then they'd be wailing in a completely different way. Their wailing would be a wailing of confession and repentance. And then I would restore them and come to them, as he says, like the spring rain. But no, they wail in their beds and cry out to me for the comforts of life that they find themselves deprived of and they're that deprivation in many cases was God's own disciplinary hand, but all they wanted was the things back, the things back. And I wondered how often that would be reflective of the prayer of people in America, perhaps even the contemporary church of our day. Uh, do we, are we motivated and moved to wailing against God when some deprivation is brought into our, into our midst or <clears throat> into our experience? Uh, do we just want the things back? Do we just want our economy back? Do we just want our low gas prices back? Do we just want, Lord, crying out, wailing out to God, oh God, you know, get our rent back in line. And it may be that those are the very things that God is chastising the nation with. And maybe our wailing as a nation ought to be in regards to the depth of our sin and our corruption. To me, we're wailing. If we're wailing to get the stuff back, we're wailing with the wrong heart. And that's what he says of Israel. Uh, you can imagine this. They're comfortable and something happens and they get deprived of some luxury they become accustomed to. And, and they're so distraught about that. They go before the Lord and they're wailing and sobbing in their beds at night, crying out to God, Oh God, restore to us our comfort. That's what we really want. It's just such an indictment in regards to Israel and the condition of their hearts. 
They look to God only insofar as they grieve the loss of temporal comforts. He mentions here grain and new wine. That's what they're wailing about. Grain and new wine. I mean, those are, those are temporal comforts, and they're, they're, they're in a lot more serious condition than just being short of some grain and some wine. I mean, they are at the precipice of the wrath of God Almighty in this context. They are, they are at the precipice of the judgments of God coming upon him. You're going to read that further in chapter 8 and to some degree here in these last closing verses that we'll look at tonight. But they were, in a, they were in a place that grain and new wine should have been the last of their concerns. Because their very existence as a nation was, a, was, on, the, was on the chopping block as it were. They were about or being prophesied here of their going into captivity and losing their, their blessing in the sense of that covenant. So there was a superficial wailing in regards to that. The verses in front of that, verse 13, Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction is theirs, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them. I would redeem them. But they speak lies against me. And so there seems to be a willingness of God here. This invitation that he offers to Israel through Hosea, Come, let us return to the Lord. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. I, I'm reaching out to them, but, but they won't come to me. They turn, he says, but not upward. And then that's the final one that I want to think about, this idea of turning but not upward. Verse 16, they turn but not, not upward. They are like a deceitful bow. Uh, you, could make, you could make the argument here an inaccurate bow or a, or a bow that promises uh, fruit, whether it's the kill or animal meat, or whether it's a bow that promises true flight, but you pull it back and it goes wrong. Uh, it goes off. It, don't, it doesn't go where you direct it. Israel's become like that. They, they outwardly may look as though they would be uh, profitable, but they are deceptive. They are a deceitful bow. And their princes, he said, will fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. Uh, that was striking, too. You, you know what to be insolent is. Uh, I remember hearing that one time from a teacher in grade school. I said something, and she said, Well, you little ins insolent fella. And I remember going home looking that up. What's insolent mean? And I found out it meant insulting. And that's what he's saying about Israel. You're insulting tongues. The princes will fall by the sword because of the insulting nature of their tongue. And I think he means towards God. Insulting towards God. So as a result, they will fall by the sword. They were looking outward, not upward. And that is the gist and the thrust of this whole message this morning and what I'm sharing even tonight. This propensity to look outward, to look elsewhere, but never upward. Uh, do, do you believe tonight that really, uh, truthfully speaking, and in an eternal uh, context, all you need is Christ? Do you really believe that? Because we think in terms sometimes of, yes, we absolutely need Christ, but I need something to eat, I need something to live, all those things. Well, those all are things that are accommodating to the natural man, to the fleshly man. Those are needs that we have in this world. And as we studied the Lord's Prayer, he knows already of those needs and he knows what we have need of. But in your heart, what is your need? What is the one thing you are desperate for and can't survive eternally without? And that's Christ. You may be desperate for somewhere to sleep 
out of the cold. You may be desperate for food and you might not get either one of those and the fleshly mighty body might be put off in death because you're deprived of those things. But your greatest need is Christ because even if that were to happen and you were to be deprived of those things, if you have Christ, you have life. And so our greatest need is Christ. And so obviously when times are tough, you would look upward would be the instinctive thing to do. We look to God. God, our nation is falling apart. We look to you. Lord, reveal to us what is the issue. Lord, reveal to us our own participation in that. Lord, we don't want to be contributing to the darkness. Open our eyes to our own corruption and our own sinfulness. Break us, bring us to our knees and humble us before you, O God, before you work on the world. We look upward, not outward. That's what I was saying this morning. We're so quick, and I'm guilty of this. We're so quick to look at all the factions that are producing and promoting darkness in our world, but we don't ever estimate or evaluate what part we have played in that being allowed and permissive uh, in our day. What have we done in our generation? Have we taught? Have we spoken truth? Have we lived truth? Have we sacrificed? Have we suffered for the sake of the truth of God in the generations before us? Or have we just sought our own comfort and hoped we could transfer it to our children while letting the things of God diminish to some spiritual realm or compartmentalize that over here and that's for church and that's for your spiritual life. But the real world, we live like this. Well, it may be that that error is being multiplied now and as he says in chapter 8, maybe we've been sowing to the wind and then if you do that, you can't really complain about reaping the whirlwind. Or at least you can't assume no responsibility in reaping the whirlwind. So the final indictment here, and I compare this to chapter 6, verse 1 there, where he says, return to me. And then here he says, they turn. They do turn. It's just not upward. And, and that is such a vulnerability for us, especially in times of difficulty in our lives. Uh, we may turn. We may decide, well, I shouldn't be doing this. I've heard people say this, something go bad in their life, and, and they get this attitude, well, God's paying me back, and so I better, I better turn. I better turn quit doing that. Well, it may be that God is chastising you through that, but the issue is, is not just don't do that. The issue is what does it illuminate about your faith, about your relationship with God? What is it exposing in you about how you value God? That might be the point, but, but we wail on our beds and, and we do a little turning here and there, work on the peripheral a little bit, adjust our lives, and try to make it more aligned with Scripture, and then maybe God will return that comfort, which is what I was really all about anyway. I don't like not having that comfort. It's just so deceptive and so subtle as to how it comes about in our lives. So, so to conclude tonight... And we'll talk about two things that are evident in this passage, verse 12 through 16, the judgments that are coming. And then throughout the chapter, really the nature, I just wanted to summarize these because this is the defiance of Israel. And so you see this in verse 7 is one. All of them are like a hot oven. They, are, they, they consume their rulers. All their kings have fallen. And then this indictment, none of them calls on me. Again, they turn but not upward. They're falling apart. They're all together become adulterers. They're like a hot oven. They're like an unturned cake. They, the whole lot of them 
priest or king, priest and princess and the people have all together become adulterous and not a single one of them calls on me. I couldn't help but think of Romans 3, which is quoting from the Old Testament, 310 and following. There is none righteous, no, not one. None seeketh after the Lord. And so it's an indictment of what Israel had become. Verse 7, no one, no one calls upon the Lord. That is really striking. I mean, I'm assuming now he means that exhaustively. There's not a single, think about this, there's not a single Israelite who is calling on the Lord in the midst of this. I mean, that would be like saying America is falling off into this darkness and there's not a single American calling on the Lord. Now, whether, whether Hosea or God's inspiring Hosea to say that with force for the impact of it or whether that's absolutely accurate, there was not a single Israelite who was calling upon the Lord. If, if that is indeed accurate, that gives you a good description of just how far Israel had gone away from the Lord and how, how justified would be the judgment of God, not only in Israel, but in the southern kingdom was moving quickly in that direction as well. He includes them often in this prophecy. So no one calls upon the Lord. What about our nation today? Is, are we calling upon the Lord or are we turning outward? Are we making some turns outwardly but not upwardly? And what are we calling on him for? Now, to be honest with you, about the only thing I could call out and wail and plead with God for for our nation today is mercy. Because if, if he's not merciful, we are ripe for judgment. Uh, just as just for what we're doing as a nation. In fact, globally, the globe is ripe for judgment. So maybe we call upon the Lord and just call upon his mercy. In verse 9, another indi indicator of their uh, defiance is their obliviousness to their own decline. Verse 9, he says, strangers devour his strength, gray hairs are sprinkled on him. And in both cases, he says, yet they don't know it. They don't know it. Yeah, that's an indictment with Israel. They are, they are falling apart and oblivious to the reality of it. They're just going on their ways in many ways. And when they lack something, they may wail on their beds. But generally speaking, they're completely oblivious to the fact that they are being drained by, of their strength. And they are becoming weak as an old man with gray hairs right in the midst. And they're walking around completely oblivious to it. That's an indication of how defiant they have been against God. To me, I think it's suggestive of their pride as well. You think about America, I, I hear people and I get this. I know that we're a superpower in the, in the, in the largest sense of the word, uh, but, but a nation that's lost its moral foundation, uh, I don't care how many nuclear warheads you got, you're not a superpower because you won't be able to sustain any, any long, long enduring campaign for justice. Uh, you won't be able to sustain it. Because you're not a moral nation. And in that sense, we still stick our chest out and wave our flags in many ways. And it's like we're oblivious to the fact that we're gradually losing our strength and gradually losing our stature and our respect and our deterrence or the fear factor in a, around the world today. No one's frightened of the, of, a, of the great superpower, it seems, anymore. And to me, that's kind of the, what was going on here with Israel. They were once feared as God's people. There were people that wouldn't touch Israel because they had heard testimony of Israel's God. But now Israel had gone away from their own God. And now the nations that once feared laying a hand on Israel because of their God 
are exploiting Israel for their own profit. And they're not in the least afraid of Israel. And Israel has lost its place, but they were oblivious to it, it seems. To me, that's just so indicative of a defiant and a rebellious heart and a prideful heart. We close our eyes to the very reality that we're losing our stature, we're losing our place, uh, we're, we're weakening, but yet we're oblivious to that. In verse 10, it says of them, they would not return and also would not seek the Lord, though the pride of Israel testifies against him. Yet, even with that, they have not returned to the Lord their God, nor have they even sought him for all this. Uh, that's an added force of that. Not only did they not return to him, they're not even looking to return. It hadn't even crossed their mind to go back to the Lord. They're thinking of Egypt. They're thinking of Assyria. They're thinking of political alliances. They're thinking of exploiting one another and gaining the advantage to provide for their own creature comforts. They got their mind on everything else but the Lord. So they're not going to return to the Lord. and They're not even thinking about returning to the Lord. They haven't sought him at all. And this was his description of Israel. Their own pride testifies against them. And all this was going on and all this prophecy was being poured out in regards to their future. And the very God who chose them uh, through his prophets prophesying of this judgment to come. And yet still they would not return to him and they would not even seek him. Verse 13 says there that they strayed and they rebelled against God. Verse 13, woe to them. For they have strayed from me. Destruction is theirs. For they have rebelled against me. So destruction is coming through their rebellion. But two things there. They stray away from God. And they rebel. Uh, one, straying, you could think in terms of, well, I wasn't paying attention. I got distracted and lured and sort of tempted away. And I've kind of moved away from God. But he brought difficulty, he brought affliction into my life, and, and I realized that I'd moved away from him and I returned to God. And well, they didn't do that. He did those things and he brought those things in their life, but the straying then became rebellion. When he brought those into their lives, they didn't say, oh, we must have gotten away from God. Let us return to him. They went farther away. That's the rebellion. Just be, just be careful that you don't think that straying uh, has no relationship to rebellion. Uh, if you stray, if you and I stray, and we don't check the stray with confession and repentance, straying then becomes rebellion. And it's amazing to me just how rebellious we can be and under what sort of pain uh, we can be rebellious in. You ever notice, you ever talk to anyone where the where I think it was the chastising hand of God made them bitter towards God. I've actually heard people, they gave up on Christianity because, because they were behaving in a certain way and things didn't go very well. And I thought to myself, well, did you ever connect the possibility that things weren't going well because you were not behaving in a way that honors God? Maybe, maybe in heart. And so God brought difficulty into your lives. And, and rather than seeing that and asking the question, Lord, are you, are you brought... Are, in your providence, are you providing obstacles here to turn me away from some wrong course? At least examining our own hearts. I'm not saying it's always true. Sometimes affliction comes into our life unrelated to our rebellion. But very often difficult times come as God's way of sanctifying or illuminating for us some self-sufficiency. 
Well, if we resist that and stray farther, then we become rebellious against God because he's reached out to bring us back and yet we've recoiled at that. We don't like that. And I've talked to people who have become bitter, it seems, with God because they had a different idea about how the Christian life was to work out and it didn't work out like they had hoped. They hadn't they don't have comfort and happiness and everything doesn't go well in their lives. So they feel as though God has abandoned them. Israel strayed and then rebelled against God. In verse 13 again, he says they speak lies against God. I, I thought about that. I, I actually was thinking about in my notes of what sort of lies and just looking through the history and trying to figure out what were the lies they were saying about God. One of them, I think they were saying by implication, which was that God will not hold us accountable for our sin. That we don't have to be obedient to God. We are his chosen people. Therefore, we have license to live as we are. After all, he'll never forsake his chosen people. And so they're resting in the God's faithfulness as a justification for their own sinfulness. Uh, I thought about that in terms of those of us who believe in the perseverance of the saints. I absolutely believe that those whom God calls, he also justifies, he justifies, he sanctifies, he glorifies. I absolutely believe that those who are called are certain to inherit the kingdom, maybe through much tribulation. But if I take that assurance, which is to be an encouragement for faithful living, if I take that and make it license for living unfaithfully or carelessly or disregarding the word of God and the truth of God, what have I accomplished in that? And I think that might be lying against God. That might be what they were saying. They were trusting in their relationship, their covenant relationship with God as some sort of assurance that God would not judge them for their sins just as he judged the nations. I wonder sometimes, do you remember that I was sharing this with someone this week as well, but uh, whenever God brought the children of Israel originally up to the border of the promised land, uh, said by the word, by his promise, I have given you the land, take it. And they sent over the spies and they spied it out and they came back and, and, the, and 10 of the spies said, there's no way, <laughs> these people are giants. Oh yes, it's a fruitful land, we've seen that, but these people are intimidating of course, Joshua and Caleb being the only two that said, no, no, no. Don't care how big they are. The Lord said, it's ours. Let's take it. And so they, they, they recalled from that. And the result was 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And then they come back to the brink of the promised land under Joshua's leadership. But this time it's different. This time they go into the promised land. But Lord, but God says to them, I'm leaving the people there. And they're going to be like bees around you. And I'm leaving there to test you. In other words, had they gone in the first time on the promise of God, part of that promise was he would move out the wicked nations, judge them, remove them, and you will be eating from vineyards and, and eating food from gardens that you didn't plant. Nothing in the promised land is going to come by your labor, labor and your effort. I am providing for you wholly even the removal of your enemies. But you would not. You wouldn't do that. You wanted, to, you, you wanted more assurance than the very word of God. And so 40 years in the wilderness, what did they learn? Everything they had to survive on was by the word of God. Every day, manna, not three days worth, not a week's worth. 
Every day they had manna. God provided for their food every single day. Not a week in advance, not a month, not six months, not five years, no promise of 10 years of provision in the desert. Every day for 40 years, he provided for every need that they had. He was teaching them that your survival always depends upon my word. And so after 40 years of training, they come back to the promised land. Now they're going to inherit the promised land with Joshua. But he says to them, but I'm not taking the enemy completely out of the way. I'll give you victory, but I'm going to leave them in place. And that's exactly what they had been. And they were testing. They were there to test Israel. So Israel's affliction, in essence, was God's testing of Israel's faithfulness through the years. And by this time, they had utterly failed. They had utterly failed because not only had they trusted God to deliver them from the hand of their enemies, but here they had taken up arms. They had made alliances with those very enemies who were inhabiting the land in some ways and even adopted many of their practices. So in that sense, they were speaking lies against God, whatever other lies they may have been saying about God. Uh, One of the things that struck me is we lie against God when we say or when we believe in our hearts that God does not take our sin seriously. Uh, I was sharing with the young people this morning as I shared from Proverbs 6, uh, 16 through 19, but uh, I really emphasized the first phrase of that because he mentions the seven things, but sometimes we overlook the fact of what he said prior to that. These things God hates, and they are an abomination to him. And I thought about how, what is the hatred of God like? We did a little exercise and went around the room. I I, I hate broccoli. You all know that. I hate it. But that's a variable hate. You may love it. So it's not not as though broccoli is worthy of hatred. I just hate it. Uh, It's a good thing. It's good for you. But I just hate it. I hate asparagus too and a bunch of other green stuff. But but there's a variable there is that that's a preference thing. God's hatred is perfect. There's no variation in it. What God hates is that which is contrary to his infinite holy nature. So when God hates something, it is a perfect, infinite hate. There's no variation in it. God doesn't hate it one day and not the next day. It is utterly despicable and an abomination to God. And so when you hear that, I'm thinking, oh boy, this is going to be some list of stuff. Murder, uh, some horrible list of things. And he starts right out with something that's striking to me, a haughty look. Uh, I looked up that word, I shared with them, it's a French, Anglo-French word, halt. Uh, some spell it H-A-U-T, others spell it H-A-L-T, but the word literally means high. A high look. I have the image of looking down at myself, and, and the definition was a, a deliberate disdain for all those people and things that we view to be inferior to us. Now, that's despicable, isn't it? But then to hear that God hates that with perfect hatred. Perfect. Man. Uh, I shared the the, the, the example when I was in school. 
we didn't have a lot of money, but I remember the very first pair of Nike tennis shoes I saw was from a guy that had moved down from New York. And he paraded in with his chest out and he looked at all our pick and pay tennis shoes. Y'all, some of you older people know pick and pay. I'm dating myself here. And we, back then, Converse weren't all that popular, but that's what you wore. And he looked down at all of our feet and our Converse and our kids and our pick and pay shoes. And, and he just walked away smug, disdain for the inferiority of the equipment that we had. And by, by extension, us. A bunch of poor folks down here in the South wearing cheap shoes. That was my first taste of a haughty look. Do you realize when it says God hates that, how deep that hatred is and how holy of a hatred it is in that? Mainly because it's self-exalting. And who are you and who, is, who am I, no matter how superior I may be to my uh, counterparts, peers, how superior are you in light of an infinitely holy omnipotent, omniscient God. Uh, we ought to be humbled. We ought to be humbled. And that was just an example of that. So there is this impurity, this speaking lies against God. In verse 14, there's this impurity of heart in religious practice. 14, they cried to me from their beds, as I mentioned there, for the sake of grain and new wine. They assembled themselves. So they're coming together and they're wailing. These are These are practices that have religious connotations but there there is an impurity in that they just want the new grain and the the, the wine and the grain they want our creature comforts back and they sob and wail from their beds and they gather themselves together and have a corporate prayer meeting and calling out to God to make us comfortable again oh God that's part of the indictment of the depth of Israel's depravity here is they were fiending some sort of religious practice, but, 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 but with the impure hearts. Verse 14, I'll finish these up. Verse 14, they turn away. They do not cry to me from their heart, but he ends that passage there with they, rather than that, they turn away from me. Even though I strained their arms for strength, what strength they had demonstrated and what victories they had won, I strengthened them for this. And still, they turn away from me. Verse 15, even further, they actually devise evil against God. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, they devise evil, evil against me. These are all indictments of how far Israel had fallen, how far they had gone. Verse 16, as I've already covered, they turn every way, it seems, but upwards. I thought about that again, the process of how how many ways we will turn sometimes before we finally surrender. Uh, and I say that word very deliberately because that was my experience. Uh, we want to remodel our lives. We want to reform our lives. But do we ever get to the place to where we finally just give up our lives and say surrender? I remember verbally, uh, explicitly, my crying out to God in regards to my life was this. Lord, I've made a wreck of it. There is nothing good. I have ruined and destroyed, destroyed and brought destruction in every aspect of my life. 
And so deep is that corruption that it has affected my very heart. And I'm not even sure that I can ever even think right again. And so such as it is, it's yours. Surrender. I wasn't looking for another way. I'd done exhausted all the ways and was just as wicked as I ever was. The ways didn't fix me. I was turning but never upward until I came to the place of surrender. And that was the first upward look that I knew. And I believe it was brought about by God in verse 16. I've already touched as well their insolence, their insulting in the manner of their speaking and acting against God. They were insulting God. Can you imagine that? Insulting God. <laughs> you might get away with insulting your neighbor or even a family member. And yet they might insult you back and y'all go away. Touche. But insulting God, a holy God, uh, who need not entertain your insolence at all. They had insulted God. Really quickly, verse 12, 13, uh, 16, all together. Here are the judgments prophesied coming. Verse 12, it says there, though they go to Assyria as they're on their way, I'm throwing out my net and I'm bringing them down. Assyria is not going to be a help. They're not going to get help from Egypt because as they fly away like a silly dove to these nations, I'm casting out my nets. And on the way, my nets is going to catch those flighty birds, Israel, and bring them to the ground. I, I see in that a humbling is coming for Israel, part of their judgment. In fact, the, the nets they're speaking of there, you may have seen these, but they, they set them up like spring-loaded. They're laying on the ground. And when the birds fly over, they come up real quick, and the birds fly right into them, and then they fold down and trap all the birds to the ground. That's the imagery here. It's not like a net, like a cast net, like I just demonstrated for fishing. Uh, this is a different kind of net. God will apprehend them as they fly and bring them to the ground. In verse 12, there is a chastisement coming upon them, one, that, one such has been proclaimed in the assembly. I think he means here the prophets, Hosea and even the other prophets. What I have prophesied in regards to your chastisement is coming upon you, Israel. You're, there's no escaping that now. You've made it clear that this is necessary in your life. Verse 13, <coughs> even more frightening. <coughs> he says here, destruction <coughs> is theirs. And they have essentially earned that in their rebellion. So destruction is coming upon Israel. In verse 16, their princes will fall by the sword. They won't just fall. They won't just die natural causes. They won't... Uh, have an overdose of wine, uh, they are going to be attacked. And there is an enemy coming with a sword. And God will bring down their princes by the sword of other nations even. And we know ultimately by Assyria itself. And then if they do fly into Egypt and they do make it there to some degree in that land, it will be derision for them. Uh, think about that. Uh, going, to Israel, going to Egypt for help after God delivered you with a mighty hand out of Egypt, your descendants or your ancestors, he brought them out with a mighty hand with plagues and demonstrations of great power. And now you're going to go creeping back into Israel, having been led out by such a mighty God. What's the derision of Egypt going to be? Where's your God now? You people talk about these stories of this great God and all the plagues he sent. Where is he now, Israel? 
Now you come crawling back down to Egypt where all the power really is. Derided. Derided. Part of their judgment. Isn't that interesting? Now they're going to have to hear other nations mock the God they once believed in. What are we hearing in our nation today? People mocking our God. Perhaps that's God's way of chastising us because we've diminished and minimized his name. Now the public that we live in mocks his name and, and we hear it and we're wounded by that in some ways. But have we contributed to their license to do that? Have we, by our lives, demonstrated such a weak God that they no longer fear speaking of him in that way? I think so. I think so. And that's part of Israel's judgment and perhaps it's part of ours the bottom line tonight as we close is this, is this idea of turning, uh, the possibility of turning in a way that's not returning. Uh, I honestly think that uh, repentance is an everyday lifestyle. It's not just something you do when you're born again. Certainly we should do that. But we're to be repenting continually. We're to be turning away from the things of this world and from all these things and turning to God always, turning away. When we find ourselves moving away from God, turn around, come back to God. I don't want to spend my life turning but never upward or turning but never truly returning. I don't really need a, an outwardly reformed life if, if the inner man is left in his old state because the destiny for that man is the same. And so even as Christians, as we find ourselves getting used to living the Christian life and finding some comfort level uh, where we can hang out and coast on into the kingdom someday, uh, we ought to remember that uh, to be sitting still is in some ways to be straying, to be drifting away. And so stand with me tonight as we close. Father, we thank you for the lessons that we can learn from your dealing with your people. Uh, Lord, I do with all my heart believe that the severity of the judgments and the severity of the speaking in regards to your people was really to illustrate not only your people but the Gentiles as well, Father, that there was none righteous, no, not a single one, not even Jews. That our greatest trauma, our greatest dilemma was a fallen nature, a nature inclined to sin, whether we do that as those living under your covenants or whether we do those living outside of those covenants in rebellion father we both share the same dilemma and so father i think the message here was pointing to christ because only in christ can the old man be put to death and the new man be raised and only the new man can live in obedience and can be pleasing to you as we are united to the son so father Thank you for the infinitely valuable sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. Lord, even now as he's interceding for us, as we sit in this room and as I speak, it is, the, it is that infinite value that is offered up. There is no way that my sin can compete with the value of that sacrifice. So, Father, we pray that we would be, Christ would be central to us in our thoughts and in our hearts. Father, I pray that... You might be near to us this week as we live in this world, Father. Help us not to grow accustomed to the darkness, but, Lord, we don't have to take up arms and we don't have to fight and be angry and be mean-spirited, but, Father, we want to be faithful. And, Lord, I just pray that through faithfulness and through your spirit and through your grace that you might shine the light of your glory through our lives. 
and that others might see that we are not shaken, that we are not frightened, that we are not flighty, and that we are not anxious even as the world is darkened, but that we are faithful and that we call upon your name boldly. And Lord, we do ask for mercy. You have been relentless in extending that, but Father, we pray for more of that here in our nation so that we might turn to you. Bless those who've come tonight, Father, watch over them throughout this week, and as I ask, Lord, may they know your near presence throughout the week and through whatever's coming. None of us know what tomorrow will bring or the next day or, or perhaps uh, throughout the week before we meet again, but Father, equip them to stand faithful, whatever those things are, and if they are good things and they are comfortable things, Father, help us to rejoice and give you all the glory. If they are difficult things, Father, help us to rejoice and give you all the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.